Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who've liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. There are many practices and traditions within Aikido, some of which are also practiced among other martial arts, which have become unconscious habits. Understanding which we have always heard about and take as truth, but like most things we have often been taught, they are a little different than what we are led to believe. My purpose in this podcast is not to tell you what the truth is or isn't, but to give you some food for thought before merely accepting what you've heard. I'll also share my own thoughts and conclusions and welcome those with greater knowledge of history to shed more light on the subject. Hakama are very popular among Aikidoka, and something almost everyone is fascinated with. I'll admit it, they have a striking look and look cool. There are many stories told about the tradition of Hakama, so much so that they almost have a mystique built up around them. Let's go through some of the common understandings of Hakama. It is often said that the seven pleats of the Hakama symbolize the seven virtues of Budo. I'm extremely dubious of this claim. First, Budo and its virtues were romanticized very late in Japanese history. There is some dispute as to exactly when and by whom, but I think the late 19th century is a good ballpark estimate. From a historical standpoint, Hakama were worn since the 6th century in Japan. So what exactly did those pleats mean between the 6th and roughly the 19th or 20th century? That's a good question. Virtues are great, but I think it's far more likely that they were an afterthought and largely a byproduct of someone noticing the coincidence between seven virtues and seven pleats. We may never know the truth of when exactly that connection was made or exactly by whom. This belief is extremely common today, but remember just because a lot of people believe something doesn't necessarily make it true. It's interesting to note that Europe romanticized their warrior class, the knights, and the code of chivalry in the Victorian era of the 1800s. We think of the code of chivalry and look to knights as romantic ideals of kind behavior. Real knights of the Middle Ages were a far cry from the romantic ideal made popular in the Victorian age. The medieval knights of the Middle Ages were part killing machine and part politician. If there was one virtue which really mattered to your master, it was loyalty. A knight's lord, to which he owed his allegiance, wanted to make sure that he had powerful knights as vassals and that those knights would not turn on him. History shows a certain parallel with the samurai. Manners took a back seat to loyalty, and the samurai were known for being quite brutal. Like medieval knights, it was commonplace to show little or no regard for those of lesser station. This behavior contradicts modern virtues of courtesy, respect, and the other virtues of Budo. Romanticizing violence also happened in the American West in the 1800s. The frontier West was largely a peaceful place. A few instances of violence did happen, but they were quite rare. Dime novels were penned about a few of these incidents and embellished to the point where the stories had little to do with the actual incident. The image of the cold-blooded and savage gunfighter was created. Legends of Wild Bill Hickok, Billy the Kid, Jesse James, and many more became wildly popular and sold many books. Their real history paints quite a different picture from what the fables tell. We all like an exciting story, but must take care to discern a tall tale from the truth. We humans are also drawn to symbolism and hidden meanings. We are just fascinated with them. I think somewhere along the way, the concept of the pleats being symbolic of the virtues of Budo got inserted where there was never really a connection before. It's not to say that the concept isn't cool, I just don't think that was the original intention. What about colored Hakama? As a young student, I was told that white Hakama was reserved for the founder of a system, or a soke. A soke is an inheritor of a family rue, or system. Another story which I read was that Osensei required all students to wear Hakama in every class. 
During World War II, Japan suffered shortages of many goods, including fabric. People who wanted to train were making hakama out of their curtains or any fabric they could get their hands on. Students would wear hakama of different colors and patterns just so that they could practice. Did any of them happen to make hakama out of white curtains or sheets? I have no idea, but I doubt there were any restrictions on what colors they could or could not wear. Another story we are told is that hakama were designed to hide the feet in the footwork, and hakama should be long enough to cover the feet so they do so more effectively. I'm highly dubious of this claim as well. Now, it's been a few decades since I was really into Japanese armor, but there's some details about the clothing of the samurai I think that are important. Firstly, samurai wore what they call kiahan, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they wore these kiahan in battle. Kiahan were fabric wraps which were bound around the lower leg to hold the hakama in. If a samurai had full armor, they would wear suniyate over them. Suniyate were hard greaves which covered the lower half of the knee down to the top of the foot. Armor on the lower leg was often not worn by lower-level samurai, but they did wear kiahan when fighting. Even lower-level soldiers, called ashigaru or foot soldiers, would bind their pants on the lower legs. It seemed that hiding footwork was not really a priority. I believe not tripping over your own pants was of far greater importance. Tripping on your hakama in battle could mean your death. This is something you could even try out for yourself to see if unbound hakama are practical for fighting. Put on your hakama and sprint across an open field with somewhat uneven ground and tall grass a few times. See how easy it is to trip. For extra credit, try running up a hill in hakama. From a practical standpoint, untied hakama are a significant detriment to combat movement. Modern kendo competitors wear hakama without kiahan, but that's a sport competition, not battle. They are on a smooth floor without obstacles and other things to get the hakama caught on. Don't get me wrong, I still think hakama look great. I don't train in them very much as of late because I don't wear them anywhere except the dojo and they really get in the way of exploring takedowns and groundwork. These are necessary skills that all martial artists should work on in my opinion. Practicing them in a hakama is a bit ridiculous, at least for those who don't wear similar garments such as dresses or skirts. Women may very well be wearing clothes like this during an attack, so training in hakama makes some practical sense in that case. In the end, I'm fine with training in hakama or not. The color doesn't really matter, nor does the color of the gi. Speaking of color, all of the students in the first Aikido dojo I joined used unbleached gis, so that's what I did too. After I stopped there and years later, I started training in another dojo, so I used my old gi only to find out all the students there wore bleached white gis. I then bought only bleached white from there on out. If any of you have seen video of me, you notice I wear a blue gi now. The only reason is practicality. The blue keeps the color better than white and doesn't get that trademark discoloration that white geese tend to. I also think it's just a good looking color. That's it. It just works better for me from a practical standpoint. There's no symbology or meaning behind it. One modern practice which is worth mentioning is the use of the word os. Most Aikido dojos I visited don't use this term, but some Japanese karate and jujitsu dojos do. I have run across a handful of Aikido practitioners who do. When a group adopts the word os, it usually goes overboard with it. They use os in place for yes, okay, hello, goodbye, thank you, I understand, excuse me, awesome, wow, and countless other words and statements. The native and fluent Japanese speakers I've asked about this show outright confusion by the word os being used like a Swiss army knife of Japanese words. 
It seems this is a perfect example of a group of non-Japanese-speaking people running away with themselves to use something Japanese just because it's Japanese, even though they are using it incorrectly. I get that there are Japanophiles out there, but it pays to find out whether what you are practicing is correct before you start going bonzo with it. I'll leave a link in the description to a great article about the word os and its use in the martial arts. Good food for thought before osing all over the place. Another tradition used in Aikido, as well as other Japanese arts, is the use of reverent titles. The one which comes to mind first, obviously, is sensei. Sensei means one who has gone before. The word itself does not denote a particular level of skill, merely someone who has more experience than you do. Of course, the use of this word has gone beyond its original definition in many cases. Different dojos and organizations can have their own criteria for the use of the term sensei. I tell my own students that it is appropriate to use the term for anyone teaching a class or even directing warm-ups. Regardless of whether they are don-ranked or not, it's merely a title of respect. A couple of terms which are sometimes used are senpai and kohai. Senpai is a senior student to you, usually indicated by when they started their training and not by their rank. Kohai is a student junior to you who started training after you did. The idea that a kohai could have a higher rank than a senpai can be a confusing concept, particularly to the rather straightforward rank model. There's nothing wrong with showing respect to somebody who has been training longer than you have. Admittedly, I don't use these terms much myself, if at all. The reason is that prioritizing protocol too much can be distracting and draw focus away from the development of the skills. Shihan is another common title, and it means to be a model, literally. And it is also used to mean a teacher of teachers. There are no universal criteria or qualifications for a shihan. Usually, achieving seventh dan allows somebody to use the term shihan. Some organizations grant this title specifically and have granted it to people ranked below seventh dan. There are some seventh dons also who are not granted the title of shihan. This means that the title is not granted by any objective standard, but is entirely subjective and is more political in nature. Like all ranks and titles in martial arts, it's merely one person giving it to another based on their own opinion. Shidoen is a title meaning instructor. I've never heard somebody address like this in person, so I'm only guessing to the pronunciation. A few instructors use this term and usually as part of their credentials. Those who do use it are typically ranked 4th or 5th dan, but like Shihan, there don't seem to be any objective criteria for this title. There are a few other titles too, like Hanshi, Kyoshi, and Renshi, but these are usually not used in Aikido. They're far more common in Japanese karate. These titles are indicative of how important politics are in the martial arts world. Practitioners get caught up pursuing higher ranks and more exclusive titles. I personally think politics is harmful to Aikido, martial arts, and human society in general. Whenever you have multiple people together in something, there will be some politics. Formalizing expressions of power, authority, and prestige, which is really what titles and ranks are, tempt people into pursuing them for their own sake, which causes more harm than good. That's just my opinion. We humans are extremely susceptible to conformity and groupthink, even without being told directly or instructed on how to behave. There have been several fascinating experiments done on this behavior, and one of the most compelling was an experiment set up in a doctor's waiting room. It's absolutely fascinating, and I'll leave a link to that video in the description as well. It's well worth the five and a half minutes to watch, and it will amaze you how easily and thoroughly conformity and peer pressure modifies behavior. What are other topics you're interested in hearing covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube.
You can also go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall side and post a comment there. Your input and engagement helps podcasts like these stay around. Please support it by liking, subscribing, and sharing. Enjoy your training.